Let this be recorded for a generation to come, so that a people yet to be created may praise the Lord. That he looked down from his holy height, from heaven the Lord looked at the earth, to hear the groans of the prisoners, to set free those who were doomed to die, that they may declare in Zion the name of the Lord, and in Jerusalem his praise, when peoples gather together and kingdoms to worship the Lord. Of old you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your years have no end. The children of your servants shall dwell secure. Their offspring shall be established before you. Those are verses 18 to 22 and then 25 to 28 of Psalm 102, which is the psalm appointed for today, Friday, October the 1st, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being along today. We're continuing our look at uh, the life of King Hezekiah right now in 2 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 20. Then we're still in the first epistle of Paul to the Corinthian church, chapter 9, verses 16 to 27. And then in the gospel according to Matthew, chapter 8, the first 17 verses. So in this passage, remember what's happened already is the Rabshake, which is sort of one of the chief officers of the Assyrian uh, government, has come down been sent by the king to to tell Hezekiah and the Israelites or the yeah the Israelites that they've made a mistake they've made an alliance with Egypt and and they were supposed to be sort of under the vassalship of the Assyrian empire and the Assyrian king Sennacherib and so he's come down to say nothing's going to save you from what's about to come and so now Hezekiah his his leaders that he sent out to greet the Rabshake have heard this, and now they've come back and they've made a report to the king. And so we're going to see that from now. As soon as King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes and covered himself with sackcloth and went into the house of the Lord. And he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, and Shebna the secretary and the senior priests, covered with sackcloth, to the prophet Isaiah, the son of Amos. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This day is a day of distress, of rebuke, and of disgrace. Children have come to the point of birth, and there's no strength to bring them forth. It may be that the Lord your God heard all the words of the Rabshake, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to mock the living God, and will rebuke the words that the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, lift up your prayer for the remnant that is left. So they they appeal to the prophet to say, surely God heard what these people said what the report was. And it it was an interesting thing, and basically it was to say none of the gods of the people, and we're going to see this again in this passage, none of the gods of these other peoples that have been conquered could do anything about it. In fact, your northern neighbors, the people who are also followers of Yahweh, have also lost their territory, and and nothing's going to save you from, from the king. Your god is nothing compared to the king of Assyria. And so that's the plea that they make to the prophet to say, please pray for us. We, we need you to pray so that you can get a word. And so the servants of King Hezekiah came to him, and he said, Isaiah said to them, Say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Don't be afraid because of the words that you have heard with which the servants of the king of Assyria have reviled me. Behold, I will put a spirit in him, and he will hear a rumor and return to his own land, and I'll make him fall by the sword in his own land. So don't worry. Don't let this this mouthy nonsense 
frighten you. You're still under my protection because you're in covenant with me, Hezekiah. You're different from the northern kingdom because the northern kingdom had not continued to be in covenant with God. They had they had assimilated all these other religions into the worship of Yahweh, and when you do that, you're no longer worshiping Yahweh, right? Because that's the very first commandment from Exodus 20 from the Ten Commandments. No other gods before me. And there are no other gods. And so anything you worship as a god, in addition to God, you put before him. And so he's telling them, don't worry about it. I got this. I have it taken care of. So the Rabshaki returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. <clears throat> so the Rabshaki did go back in response to that rumor. The, the king heard concerning Tirkah, the king of Cush, which is sort of northern, uh, southern Egyptian, uh, heading over toward um, Israel, actually. Behold, he is set out to fight against you. This is the rumor the king heard that the king of Cush was coming to fight against him. And so he went out based on that rumor. And then now here we go with Shebna, or not Shebna, but Rabshaki returning. So he, so he, the king of Assyria, sent messengers again to Hezekiah saying, Thus shall you speak to Hezekiah, king of Judah. Don't let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you by promising that Jerusalem will not be given in the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you've heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands, devoting them to destruction, and shall you be delivered? Have the gods of the nations delivered them, the nations that my fathers destroyed, Gozan, Haran, Resef, and the people of Eden who were in Telassar? Where is the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, the king of Hena, or the king of Eva? And so Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it, and he went up to the house of the Lord and spread that letter before the Lord. And then he prayed, O Lord, the God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. And that should be a great starting point for the way that we praise God, that we lift him up in this way. You are the God. You alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us, please, from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, O Lord, are God alone. Then Isaiah sent to Hezekiah, saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Your prayer to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, I have heard. And so what he does in that prayer is, is he distinguishes between Yahweh, the living God, the one who alone is God, and all these other gods, which are nothing but idols. And so he has recognized there, there is a false comparison here being made by Sennacherib and his representatives concerning the gods of these people and the God of Israel. They're not gods at all. He's made strong theological statements and arguments here to say, you're the living God. You're not stone. You're not wood. You are living. Open your ears. Open your eyes. So it's a powerful corrective and a strong theological statement about the beliefs of the king and his understanding 
of all things. And so it, it, the appeal is based in who God is. And then in relationship to his people in covenant, there's, there's a living relationship. And God is obliged, because if the people are faithful, then God's obliged to do these things, to preserve his people. And so Hezekiah pleads with him, but it's for God's reputation in the world that he pleads for this. So in the gospel, Jesus comes down from the mountain after he had, this is at the end of the the Sermon on the Mount. So so he's given the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, and now he comes down from the mountain, and great crowds followed him, and a leper comes to him and kneels before him and says, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. Did he have to touch him? No, he did not. We're going to see that in the next part of this lesson. Jesus doesn't have to touch people to heal them. But this man, this leper, comes before Jesus. He's not supposed to approach anyone. He's supposed to warn them, in fact, not to approach him. But this guy has faith. He believes something. He comes to Jesus, and he pleads with him, and Jesus touches him. And in touching him, he blessed him and he healed him all at the same time. This is an untouchable, literally. And Jesus has touched this man. Human contact. First time since he's had leprosy, probably because he's not allowed that human contact. Because he will contaminate anything that he touches. That thing is now rendered unclean. Person, vessel, whatever. So Jesus takes the initiative and reaches out and touches this untouchable. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said, see that you say nothing to no one, to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a proof to them. And so the, 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 the gift that Moses commanded is actually a sin offering. And so this leper has to go and Jesus sends him to the priest. But he, but he doesn't say, just go show him. Who you are, he says, go make this offering that Moses commanded. The law hasn't been done away with. And, and leprosy was, was, was and is considered to be a punishment for sin. It's the revelation that this person is speaking badly and passing gossip. And so he has this thing on him. And so leprosy is connected in Jewish minds and in Jewish theology with sin. And this is, like I said before, this is not the same leprosy we call today Hansen's disease, not the thing that, that wasting skin disease. It's, it's blemishes on the skin, but it reveals something else. And so Jesus sends him to go and be cleansed of this thing. And, and so he's got to make the sin offering, even though he's whole, he still has to fulfill all righteousness by making the sin offering from, the, from Leviticus. <clears throat> so he sends him to do this because Jesus has not yet died. And so atonement for this hasn't been made yet. So, so he sends him to the priest, not just to say, hey, look at me, Jesus healed me. No, he sends him to the priest and commands him specifically to make this gift. So, and then when Jesus enters Capernaum, which is where Peter's from, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And I said to him, I'll come and he, and and he said to him, Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority 
with soldiers under me. And if I say to one, go, he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. So he believes, and he's confessing something in the same way Hezekiah confessed about the living God. Here, this man, this Roman centurion, is the one confessing faith in Jesus, that he is a man of authority, and he has authority over things like diseases. And he believes that Jesus can exercise that authority from any distance. He need not even come under his roof. He's recognizing him first as I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. And then he says, here's why. And so he understands authority and he understands what's under authority. So Jesus hears this. He marveled and said to those who followed him, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. This, this man's making a profound statement of faith in the same way that Hezekiah did. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus, that, that's going to turn some people's stomachs and heads. There's going to be people who you think of as Gentiles and outcasts who are actually going to be there in the kingdom, and some of y'all won't, in spite of the fact that you're, quote, sons of the kingdom. The centurion said, uh, and to the centurion, Jesus says, go, let it be done for you as you've believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. And then he continues on. He goes to Peter's house. He sees uh, Peter's mother-in-law there lying sick with a fever, and he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Again, Jesus is touching a sick person, which just conveys uncleanness. And yet she arises and begins to serve them. And that evening they brought to him many oppressed by demons, and he cast out spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Again, these are statements of faith. People coming to Jesus in faith in those first two um, instances that, that they believed that he could do something about the situation and they believed it utterly and they presented themselves to him in ways that would have been in some ways inappropriate um, for, for a Jewish rabbi to receive people and yet Jesus does exactly what they ask. In this epistle, Paul's saying, look, if I preach the gospel, that gives me no grounds for boasting for necessity is laid upon me. I'm doing what I'm required to do This is something the Lord has given me to do, and I don't have any choice. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. If I do this in my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. I don't have any choice in the matter. This is stewardship been given to me. I've been made a trustee of something, and that's the gospel. And I have to do fulfill the obligation that's laid upon me in that regard. He says, what then is my reward? The reward, he says, is this, that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so that not, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. I, I'm, not doing, I'm not receiving anything from you. Remember, that's been his argument before. I, I'm, not, I'm not receiving anything from you. So the fact that I do it free, for free, means I get a reward for that. He says, for though I'm free from all, I've made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ 
that I might win those outside to the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And so what does he mean by I might save some? Well, he's the one who's throwing the life ring. He's the one who's raising these people from the dead, literally, spiritually, because they were, in fact, dead. We were, in fact, dead before the word of Christ came to us, before the Holy Spirit was given to us, and we received with gladness the proclamation of the gospel, which is the crucifixion of Jesus is atonement for the sins of the whole world, and his resurrection means that we too will be resurrected from the dead. But that resurrection has already begun in you if you're a Christian. You were dead in sin. Now you've been raised to life with him. And so Paul says, I do this in order to save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He's not saying compete with other people, compare yourselves with other people. He's saying, no, run the race so that you might win the race. You don't have to look at everybody else and say, well, I'm running better than he is. No. Hey, you know what? Here's the reality. Go back and watch the men's 800 from like 1972 with Dave Waddle in it. Dave Waddle's running last. And then suddenly this unbelievable kick that he makes over the last few hundred yards propels him into the win. Well, don't you be the one who lets Dave Waddle pass you. Run to win that race. No matter what anybody else is doing today, you run like you're at the last 20 meters all the time. It says every athlete exercises self-control in all things because you're not able to compete unless you control things, exercise that self-control. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, you know, the wreath that you get, the laurel wreath that you get when you win the race. He said, but we do it to win an imperishable one. So I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air. I know what I'm doing, and I'm under control. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. He says, sin matters. He says, what I say and what I do need to be the same. They need to be the same thing. That proclamation extends to both things. And so he's reflecting in some ways upon what Jesus said yesterday. Didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus says, I never knew you, you workers of iniquity. You did these things, but you also did these other things, you workers of iniquity. And Paul says, nope, I'm taking care of my body too. I'm disciplining my body so that I don't sin. I'm saying no to the devil in all things in order that I not lose what I have in Jesus Christ. 